This is The Guardian. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. On the 13th of September, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, was arrested in Tehran for allegedly violating Iran's hijab rules. Three days later, she was dead. Police continue to maintain that she died of natural causes, but her family suspect that she was subject to beating and torture. Since then, protests and acts of resistance have been building across the country. Women in Iran set their headscarves on fire in fury. They are tired of the morality police beating them up, and the Islamic Republic leaders who police their every move. These demonstrations have spilled into cyberspace, with viral videos of women burning their hijabs, cutting their hair, and singing and dancing. Unprecedented scenes in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Schoolgirls across the country flouting the law, some uncovering their hair, many even chanting death to the dictator. In response, the Iranian regime has been shutting off the internet in parts of Tehran and Kurdistan and blocking access to platforms like WhatsApp and Instagram in an attempt to curb a growing anti-regime movement. Limiting and blocking the internet is a technique governments around the world are using. But how do they do it? And why, in Iran, did the death of Masa Amini spark so much rage? From The Guardian... I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Azadeh Akbari, you're an assistant professor in public administration and digital transformation at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And you also recently wrote a piece for The Guardian about how shutting down the internet has been a real blow against women by the Iranian regime. Azadeh, in the article, you say that the collective fury pouring out onto the streets right now is a result of decades of oppression against women in Iran. Could you tell me a 
bit more about that and the journey of Iranian women up until this point? The Iranian women's movement started not really long after the Iranian revolution in 1979. On the 8th of March 1979, women um, demonstrated because um, they wanted to protest against the compulsory hijab, which was very fresh at the time. And this carried on over decades by controlling women's bodies, women's sexuality and women's control over their lives, basically. And in 1993, we have a new law which um, obliged police forces to take control of women's hijab in public spaces. And from that time until now, police forces have been surveilling and controlling women's clothing in public spaces. Azadeh, how is this policing actually being enforced? This policing of it has become more and more violent. Since 2005, we have these morality uh, police that they have patrols all over the cities in Iran and they violently arrest women. And of course, people are angry. Of course, women are angry. It really is so impressive what women and girls in Iran are doing in response to this violence and humiliation, campaigning online, organising demonstrations and sharing videos and photos, resisting these oppressive rules, and especially when you think about what the consequences could be. So tell me about how women are using the internet to their advantage. All through these years, despite all this suppression, despite unjust laws, Women's movement have always existed. There is a very strong feminist movement in Iran. This kind of awareness amongst Iranian women sort of spread itself to the cyberspace as soon as women had access to the internet. Um, So recently, the younger generation of women are using the opportunities that the social media platforms are offering to, for example, have websites about violence against women, about domestic violence. We had the Iranian Me Too movement, but at the same time, very specific campaigns also for targeting compulsory hijab. And this brings us back to why we're talking about this, Masa Amini's death in custody after being detained by Iran's morality police. The police continue to maintain that she died of natural causes. But just tell me what's been happening, what the response to this has been. I think Masa Amini's death is very similar to what happened in the United States after the murder of George Floyd. You know that there is, for example, structural racism in the American society. And you know there has been resistant movements since forever protesting against this. But there is sometimes an innocent death that brings out all that anger and fury against the oppression people have felt on their skins and bodies for such a long time. And Masai Amini's death is very much similar to, to that. And for decades, women have been angry. And this time, It's basically saying enough is enough. That has meant, in recent weeks, ongoing protests around the country, with reports of thousands of arrests and many more deaths. 
human rights organisations monitoring the situation have reported that in an attempt to curb the anti-regime demonstrations, there have been widespread internet outages and that residents have been unable to access social media. Two of the major communication tools that Iran usually allows, Instagram and WhatsApp, have been restricted. So we've seen varying levels of sophistication when it comes to restrictions on internet access. That is Alp Toka, director of NetBlocks, which maps internet freedoms around the world, and one of the organisations who has been monitoring Iran's internet access. I asked him about the different ways governments and regimes can limit or block the internet in their countries. These can be as simple as simply pulling the plug and disconnecting a network, disconnecting users. And it can go all the way up to the more sophisticated types of measures, like filtering individual platforms, deep packed inspection that really digs into the traffic of individual users to censor them in an almost individualised or personalised manner. Alp, let's go for the sledgehammer end of the spectrum first. When governments completely shut down the internet and data access for everyone, I just can't imagine how it works. Could you step me through how this actually happens? So there's a myth of the internet kill switch, this idea that there's a big red button or switch on the desk of despotic leader, which will turn off the internet across the country. In fact, what we've seen around the world is that governments uh, struggle to switch off internet connectivity because the internet is designed to remain available, to remain on during crises. So what you'll see is that governments will scramble to order individual internet providers to switch off some or all of their customers during a political scandal or a crisis or an alleged security incident. Right. And what about the other end of the spectrum? What are some of the ways that governments and regimes can limit access? When it comes to restricting access to an individual website or perhaps an app, governments have a wide range of options to use. Some of these are as simple as a method known as DNS poisoning. DNS is the yellow pages. It's a lookup where a computer will take the address, the name you've given, and will turn that into an internet address. So by removing that entry from the lookups, they can simply prevent you from accessing it. Another method is the the black holing, for example, of networks, so that no traffic can get through to that range. This is quite popular when governments want to restrict access to all the services provided by a specific company. So say if they want to cut off Meta's services, including Instagram, Facebook, they'll just make sure that that network isn't reachable or routable. But beyond these, there's also the more sophisticated method of DPI filtering, deep packet inspection. So this looks into every single package, every single packet to see where it's going, where it's destined, and what the source is as well. And it can create very specialized, individualized filtering regimes that can apply to different types of customers or different types of users to really craft the internet experience and make sure that users don't get access to the content that the government doesn't want them to access. Alp, what kind of things can be done to push back against this? Is it possible to somehow get any kind of access to the internet if your government has forced providers to shut it down? When it comes to reconnecting people who have no internet access, there's an obvious challenge here because the infrastructure isn't there. That doesn't mean that there are no options whatsoever. We've seen that there are some basic options that can be tried. We've successfully got people back online using something as simple as as a modem 
like from the 90s that screeches when you're connecting. And although it's very slow as an experience, it can help get messages through the phone system in an emergency when there isn't another internet connection. Alp, can other countries or external organisations intervene to try and provide citizens with internet access if it does go down? One of the new up-and-coming options that is in fact quite an old technology is a satellite internet. We know that satellite internet has been around for a while, but there's a new generation of this technology called low earth orbit technology that offers more vast and reliable connectivity. I think Starlink is one of the examples that's been heard of lately. The technology is promising, but it's not necessarily the right solution for Iran right now because it requires special terminals, physical hardware, to be brought into the country and to be installed on your roof. So there's two problems here. One is obviously importing it if if the government doesn't want you to have this kind of equipment. The other is that it may be detected or at least spotted from above. And I just want to get a sense from you how important it is to try and find ways like the ones that you've described to try and restore the internet and mobile data connections when they are lost. One thing that's become apparent to us tracking internet connectivity around the world is that internet access is undoubtedly a human right. And this isn't as idealistic as it sounds. If you think about it in this day and age, especially post-pandemic, the internet is the way we access all other fundamental human rights. It's it's the, the path to recourse. So by shutting down the internet, governments can silence a nation. And that's extremely alarming because it disables so many other mechanisms and fail-safes and institutions that are there that are meant to support democracy and human rights. Around the world, people are working hard to find creative technological solutions to get around the limitations and shutdowns being experienced in Iran so that citizens can continue to fight for their human and democratic rights. I asked Azadeh Akbari about her reflections on what's happened and how she feels about the future of women's movements in Iran. So it is a collective trauma, but it's also collective hope and as a woman that has been born and grown up in Iran and has been involved in so many uh, women's movements and protests, and as a former journalist, it's always also hopeful to look at how schoolgirls are changing things that we did not dare to change 20 years ago. And I think it is important to understand these demonstrations are against compulsory hijab. They are demonstrations for freedom and freedom of choice over clothing. It's not against men. It's not against religion. And that's why I think it's such a progressive movement that has attracted so much support from different groups of society. And you see women with complete hijab attending these demonstrations because they are supporting that freedom of choice And I think after 44 years of oppression, this is one of the most progressive feminist movements that you would see around the world. Thanks again to both Azadeh Akbari and Alp Toka. 
The Guardian's daily podcast, Today in Focus, recently covered the death of Masa Amini and what's happened since, and I really recommend taking a listen to that. Just search for Today in Focus wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley and Jackie Wakefield. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.